Micah 6. I'm going to read verses um, 6, 7, and 8. Micah 6, 6, 7, and 8. Under my Bible, it has obedience above sacrifice. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for a transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Then the Lord has an answer for us. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Um, I decided today that I'd like to preach on one of my favorite verses, and that was the one that was just read to you in Micah. And I wanted to tell you the story behind that verse and why I think it's such a powerful verse uh, for us. And in that, in telling that story, I think that we will... um, I hope I'm not leaving anybody behind me here. I'm hoping that um, we will capture what the book is about, what the theme of the book is about, and what Micah's life as a prophet was all about as well. So that when you open your Bibles and you turn to Micah and you're reading it sometime that maybe you will catch more of the meaning uh, inherent in that book and why that book was in the Bible and is in the Bible today. Micah was one of the uh, 8th century prophets, and um, there were several of them, and they were speaking about at a time when terrible catastrophes were falling upon God's people. And it was a string of catastrophes that went on for many, many years, hundreds of years. And the prophets all had pretty much bad news to deliver to the people. We don't like hearing bad news, do we? Why is it that the good news has to also be accompanied by bad news? Anybody know the answer to that? You know, these prophets would have probably delighted to give good news. But instead they had to give bad news. Why did they have to give bad news? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the problem. And um, God wanted to direct their attention uh, back to themselves and look at maybe the reasons why all of these calamities were befalling them one after another. You know, they are not that much different than us. When we have calamities befall us, we turn to God and we say, God, you should fix this. Please fix this. Do this, do that. But not very often do we turn to God as the prophets were instructed to tell the people, look within your heart and find out why this is happening. There's a purpose behind this. It's something that you need to do. You need to make some serious changes. And so this is a message that's helpful for us as well to be able to understand that in our own experiences with the Lord. Um, thank you, Gene, for reading the, um, the passage in, in the verse 7 as well, where God bluntly tells the people, and I'm using my own language here, that your religious services and your religion is not working. All of the sacrifices, all of that kind of stuff, 
is not doing it. It's just simply not working. And I believe the reason why we're still here in 2009 is because probably the same reason. Something's missing. We are fervently involved, I mean, Christians of all stripe are fervently involved in trying to hang on to the church and do the things that they need to do in the church that they've been told to do, but it's not doing it. And God had a message after he said, that's not working, what did he say? What did he say to them? Three things he said that they needed to do. Look at your verse, verse 8, Micah verse, chapter 6, verse 8. Look at it. What did he say? To do justly. Love mercy. This is what God wanted. He wanted those three things. They would correct the problem. Maybe there's some information there for us as well. Now Micah lived in a time, and I'll give you the the framework of time, 740 to 700 B.C. He was a contemporary of a prophet that's much more known, Isaiah. And um, uh, at the same time as Samaria was going through and experiencing firsthand the judgments of God falling upon them. By the way, who does God use as instruments to bring about his judgments in these cases? The nations, the surrounding nations. Yeah, he uses the surrounding nations. People who these Jewish people felt were outside of the realm of God were becoming instruments for God bringing his people back in line. Very interesting. The heathen, the unclean, were being used that way. Uh, in these, uh, during the time of Micah, and, um, and Isaiah, and even later on through some of the following prophets after them, terrible fate fell upon Samaria, the ten northern tribes, and the two southern tribes later on in Judah. In the ten northern tribes, you may remember this, but the fate that fell upon them, now listen to this, this is horrendous, was so severe that they became the lost people. We don't know what happened to them. They were destroyed and then they were deported. And I, I, I watched the other night on television um, um, a story, actually it was some time ago, about an island in the Pacific that is being buried with water now as the sea levels are going up. And these people, did you see that story? It was an amazing story. And these people, this is their home. It's more than that. It's their nation. It's their country. And it's being buried by water. And they were being faced with the huge dilemma of where do we go? Who will take us in? Where do we start all over again? And not too many people in the world opened up the doors to these island countries, you know, that are being, being just buried with water. It was a horrible story. And I thought about, you know, these people that were being deported by the, uh, the forces of the surrounding nations just became lost. They blended in and became lost. We get some ideas here and there of where some of them... Is, you've heard of the Danube River? 
Maybe, maybe there's some of the descendants of Dan went up there. And geography kind of helps us. Sometimes we can see a name that looks a little like maybe one of those tribes. And it might remind us, well, some of those maybe have gone that far, whatever. But they were the lost tribes. And a few years later, maybe a hundred plus years later, the uh, southern tribe reserved or received the same kind of fate. Not quite as severe at that time. Now, this, I want to take this at, a, at one point in time. The first one is to do justly, right? And I want to look at that and see what that means. Micah's message was that judgment was coming. If you look at it in chapter 1, verses 2 and on. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all that it contains. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is becoming, uh, is coming forth from His place, and He will... Come down and, let me get some help here, tread upon the high places of the earth. So judgment was on its way. God was coming. And the only way to avoid it when you have the judgment of God coming is what? How do you avoid it? What? You have to go back to God. You have to go return to God. Fall upon His arms in mercy and just plead with Him. And you have to do more than that, not just to escape, but that the Lord would take you back and do in you what needs to be done to bring you home. You have to be repentant and be willing for God to change you. Now, how does God judge? And you'll see in the book of Micah, as you look through it sometime, you will see that He treats us like we have been treating others. That's the way he does. And so, as you look through the book, you will find that um, those who snatched lands away from others, and that was a problem. It was not that different than what's going on today in North America, where you find that people are in terrible financial situations, and they're losing their houses, and some people are coming in, and they're snatching their houses away from them. It's not that different from then to today. The punishment on people who do that, their uh, own lands and posterity would be taken away. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Those who turn a deaf ear to the cry of the helpless victims, how does God judge them? You remember what they do? God does. He turns a deaf ear to them. He treats them the same way so that they will understand what they've been doing wrong and how terrible what they have done is really and that they should not do that anymore. They will repent of it. What we serve out to others, God sees to it that the same will come back upon us. Um, The terrible thing that was happening among God's people is that there was a system set up to make sure that this would never happen. In the beginning, uh, the heads of the families would make decisions. They would be working kind of like judges. And then it got to be the larger tribes, and you got, you know, uh, judges over groups of people. And then you got the king was supposed to set up some sort of a magisterial system. And then you also have later on um, paid judges. And all of these judges were supposed to know judgment. 
And the word know is the biblical term know. That they would know judgment intimately, experientially in their own heart. I have, I've appeared a few times before a judge. Uh, I used to drive faster than I drive now. Don't ever start that. Because this time that I was appearing before the judge, I was not in the wrong. It was a total wrong thing. But because I had a record, didn't make any difference. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> you see what I mean? So watch out for that. Um, anyway, uh, they were to know justice. And they demanded that they experience this justice in the inner part of their soul, not just superficially. And when I went before that judge, I knew I wasn't going to get that kind of judgment. There was no reason to tell them a thing. They've already made up their mind. And this is what was going on in those days. The system that the people had set up, that God had set up in the land of, of um, Israel, the land of Judah, was to protect the people from uh, maltreatment, from unrighteous judges. And this was what was going wrong. In Micah's time, the judges accepted bribes for the purpose of perverting justice. And um, that was something that was specifically forbidden in covenant law. The prophets were also, as well as the priests, guilty of the very same thing. That's pretty bad, isn't it? As you look at that, you can see this scattered around uh, chapter 3, verse 5, and then also later on in verse 11. It talks about those things. Micah just po uh, points out point by point the wrongs. And I, I, I think we all recognize this. I have been doing some reading in the writings of Ellen White recently on the subject of spirituality. And I am amazed at how the penmen of the Lord, prophets or whoever they might be, are able to pinpoint so accurately, just embarrassingly accurately, what the fault is and what needs to be done. There's no wiggle room to get out from under it. You know, it is so direct, it is so clear, and it's so profound to read that. It's like you say, that's right. You know, that is right. You know that. But it wasn't so. It wasn't so. What a person sows, the Bible says, he will also reap. Just as you turned a deaf ear to my people, I will turn a deaf ear to you, God says. You have built up Zion with blood and iniquity. What did he mean by that? People had become unbelievably wealthy and were building mansions for themselves at the cost of whom? The poor. The blood. And God had nailed it. He was just nailing. Zion, as a result of that, God says, shall become a plowed field and Jerusalem shall become a ruin. Did that eventually happen? It sure did. But another thing about this, you not only have the, the awesome judgments of God falling, horrible judgments of God, but you also notice that God is very slow in meeting them out. Sometimes it takes a long, long time before that judgment finally comes. Here the prophet is announcing it, and in some cases it takes hundreds of years until it finally comes about. So God is very gracious and slow in doing those kind of things. But never, and I love that about God. I'm glad he's been gracious with me. 
I'm glad there's some things in my life that he has put so far away from me that I hope I'll never see them again. I'm glad he's that way. God is good. He's horrible in judgment, but he's also good. Now the words uh, just kind of hit the children of um, Israel and Judah like a bombshell. How could God do these things to them? After all, they were his people. They were uh, uh, the promised children. How could he do this? How could he tear down his temple? How could he destroy Jerusalem, his city, his sanctuary? They believe that that is something that God could not possibly do. And the false prophets were counting on all of that theory to support their saying, saying nothing's going to happen. Don't worry, nothing's going to happen. Brothers and sisters... Just let me remind you of something. God does have expectations. He does have hopes. He does have desires. And even though He is so very patient with us, like nobody any, anywhere else, He is patient. He will not be denied His expectations and His hopes. And sometimes it's really hard to be one of God's prophets. You know what I mean? It's just very difficult to serve the Lord because it's just really hard to say the things in a generation, in a world like then and like now that is not going to be heard, not going to be received. What a terrible job these prophets had, Micah had. Okay. The inhabitants of Israel and Judah were marked for killing, for enslavement. Its buildings would be destroyed, snuffed even uh, to its roots. The city wall, palace, temple would be broken down, turned to rubble. The entire city would be put to the torch. Anything of value would be taken as spoil. Well, it didn't happen immediately. Micah spoke these words. In the last decade of the 8th century, Jerusalem continued for over another 100 years. In 609 B.C., however, Jeremiah stood up at the gate of the temple at the time that the destruction had come and he was arrested and thrown into a well for what he said. But what he said reminded the people of Micah's words years and years ago, what God had said. When God comes in judgment, he is looking for fruit. I just want to make that connection. In judgment... God is looking for fruit. Now, who's the, what is the fruit here? He wants to see something that he's invested coming through in our lives. He wants to see characteristics of his own character reproduced in us, right? He wants to see me be more civil and more kind and more generous and gracious Sometimes I'm not. And so he's looking for that fruit. He's looking for steadfastness and faithfulness. He's looking for all kinds of things that would give some kind of evidence that we are indeed his children. And that's what judgment is all about. He goes through with the prophets. He goes through the, the city of Jerusalem. He goes through Israel. And he doesn't find fruit anywhere. What a horrible thing that God's people are not manifesting anywhere the fruit of God in their lives. Now that's a sobering thought. 
I would think you'd find a little more. Don't you think so? You hope so. But he couldn't do that. Later on, Abraham looks for a righteous man. Uh, Jeremiah looks for a righteous man. Ezekiel looks for a righteous man. Couldn't find them. God just asked him, go see if you can find some. They couldn't. Do you remember about Job? How happy God was that there was a Job? And he can tell Satan who wanted to prove that there was no righteous man. God was so pleased and thrilled to be able to point out, but I have one. I have one. He's Job. And Satan says, nah. (laughs) Let me show you he really isn't. And so he does these horrible things to Job. And he comes back, I still have him, don't I? God is so anxious to have the fruit come through in our lives. And how difficult a task that is uh, to happen. Jesus, is, Jesus uses the words of uh, Micah in talking to the generation of his day, telling them the same kind of problems. Any semblance of godliness was slipping away forever. It was the dying of the soul of a people meant for far greater things. Now, I remember this statement. There was a whole series of them. I may have mentioned this in a previous sermon. In the last part of the 1800s, God was telling Ellen White, he was saying over and over again that he was ready to come. Even he would have come ere this. It was his time to come. But he couldn't because the people were not producing the fruit. They weren't ready. The character of God was not manifested in their heart. Now, now, what, what I want to bring to our attention today, and this is, to me, as much as all of us, he's ready. He's been ready for a long time to come back. But the same problem exists. We don't have people that are producing the fruit. That's including me, all of us. And so God is still waiting, still waiting. He wants us to, among the things... The three things that Micah said. He wants us to practice justice. To practice justice. And that's what is so important and that's what needs to happen. Let me tell you a story right now. I used to pastor the um, Healdsburg Church. And um, I discovered this story while I was pastoring that church. And the story goes back a number of years. Uh, to the early years of the Adventist uh, movement in Healdsburg area. And uh, Ellen White became aware of an alarming situation in Healdsburg. She had a home in Healdsburg. It's still there, by the way. You can see her home. At the time that she became aware of this, she was a long ways away in Australia. But while there, God made her aware of the case of Brother and Sister Linegar. He was a fruit farmer. And I tell this story to illustrate what I'm going to try to say here. And this fruit farmer became extremely prosperous with land purchases. And he had decided that he wanted to become a Seventh-day Adventist. He joined the church wholeheartedly. His prosperity allowed him to be very generous with large donations that he would make to the college that was then located 
in Healdsburg, not at PUC. This was before they moved to PUC. Big college there. Little tiny town, big college. And also, he gave large donations to the health retreat at Deer Park and also to the local church. He was very, very generous. You went to see Brother Leniger, you got money. He was that way. Does that sound like the kind of people that Micah is talking about? Is that the way the Jews were in Micah's day? No, they were grasping for money. They were holding on to money. Leniger was just the opposite of that. So he's a great man, good man. And then suddenly his fortunes turned against him and they left him in the most dire of circumstances. He was absolute broke. This very generous man flipped on the other side, totally destitute. He had to sell everything and leaving him and his family literally with no place to live, almost nothing to eat. And there were none, none that came to his aid when he was in that problem. Now, which group represents who in Micah's story here? The church that was the benefit beneficiary of all of his generosity refused to reciprocate. Refused. He was generous. They refused. This now, I've got to tell you something. Who were these people? Good, solid Adventists. Very careful to practice Adventists. Hmm. Are you proud of them? Anyway. Ellen White heard about it. And she instantly allowed his family to stay in her home in Healdsburg. The situation for Brother Leniger was so extreme, listen to this, that he was compelled to place a mortgage on Ellen White's house for his own financial needs. I don't know. It must have been pretty dire, his situation. Ellen White did not hold that against him. Ellen White discovered what was happening and she would write these letters. Those of you who have read her letters know how she could write. (laughs) She wrote these letters across the ocean. She wrote them to the California conference and she thoroughly chastised them for not helping out Brother Linegar. She didn't put the fault on him that he put the mortgage on her house. She put the fault on the church. And she contacted all the agencies and eventually after a lot of work, when she finally moved back from Australia to Healdsburg, when she came back, she actually, she got a fund established to help the Leningers get back on their feet again, take care of them. But it was so amazing to me to see in this story how that these people, Adventists in my own church, who were probably regarded very highly in the congregation, were doing something so much like what Micah and Isaiah were writing so strongly against. It's an it's amazing story. I thought, so I had to tell you that. The Bible clearly reveals that when God gave lands to His people in biblical times, it was loaned. He still owned that land himself. It was loaned to them. And they could not pass this on, uh, sell their estates to somebody else. It stayed in that family so that the family would always have someone. By the way, anybody that practices that today still finds that a very successful way. 
that there is always something to take care of the family, a home. Um, but all of that was forgotten in Micah's day. And the people were foreclosing on loans. They were dealing corruptly in the, in the courts and they had no regard for the pain that their actions brought upon others. Wicked priests, instead of defending the poor against the predatory rich, were in league with the rich. He had to confront false prophets, lulling the people into a deadly spiritual sleep by assuring them of God's love and affection towards them. I'm trying to tell you that sometimes, in order for God to get what He wants and needs, which is fruit, there has to be a line drawn. And that line says, you better correct this problem. And it's a difficult thing to do, but it needs to happen. The greed of the nobles, the kings, the judges, all of these people who were supposed to be providing and taking care of the poor... God's agents in doing that were depriving them of their legal rights and grinding the people down. This is all done in open. No one was ashamed of it because everybody was doing it. When corrected of their wrong, they were offended that anybody would bring it up because they could not believe they had done anything wrong. I'm going to move forward. The next thing that we find out to do justly and what? Have mercy. Have mercy. Very important, this concept of mercy in the Bible. Mercy simply means love that binds people together in love. Rich to the poor, poor to the rich, the alien to the Israelite, Israelite to the alien, the same kind of love that God has for all people. That's what it means to be merciful. That there are no differences no barriers that everybody practices the same attitude towards one another of graciousness and mercy. Mercy allows hearts to be opened, to merge, and to become one. Being just and merciful will satisfy the demands of the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. Very important. So God wants us to be merciful. Extremely important is mercy. Now, what's the last one? To walk humbly with your God. Now God would use the enemies of Israel as his instruments of punishment. And for 34 years from 735 to 701 B.C. Armies swept through the small states of Palestine. Demanding heavy tribute from each of all the nations. Or else they would be annihilated. Okay? Who was demanding this? Heathens. Who were they demanding it from? God's people. Should God's people pay? If you were the prophet, what do you think God would say? Should you fight against that? Should you resist it? If they are agents of God, what should you do? The people believed, the people, uh, the, the, the false prophets and all the kings and many, many of the priests believed that God would never speak against himself or against his people. And so that's what they told the people. Were they right? No. God was using the heathen to bring his own people into correction. Something that was absolutely necessary. 
So for 34 years, they swept through. And every time they came, they would get this response. The false prophets would say, fight. Kind of like the priests did when the fall of Jerusalem took place. Don't give in. Fight till the last man. And basically, that's what happened. Horrible deaths came as a result of resisting. The prophets of God recognized what God was doing, that He was using the heathen to bring correction. And they said, don't do this. Don't league yourself up with these other nations and fight against these people. You know, submit. This is something that God is bringing upon us. I've had times in my life when God brings things on me that I know absolutely are corrective measures. He's trying to fix me. And I could find many, many promises in the Bible when those times come and throw those promises at the Lord and say, Lord, take this away. You've promised better things for me. Just like the false prophets did in those days. I need to learn in those times to walk humbly before God. To do justly. To do the right thing on relationships. To make sure that the people are taken care of. That people are not trodden down. To do the right thing. To love mercy. To look everybody as though they are no better and no worse, but equal with you and you with them. And to treat them accordingly. And now to walk humbly. It's a hard walk to walk humbly. Because God will pile it on for as long as He needs to to get the results that He needs. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So I'm saying to you that it's not unusual for God to pile things on. And sometimes we ask in prayer for things that are just the opposite, like the false prophets. Because God is doing things that are absolutely essential to bring about fruit in our lives. And He's gracious in the way He works with that. Okay, to walk humbly with the Lord. Um, Not only did Israel resist... Uh, Assyria's army, they resisted God's leadership. They clung to their idolatry. Ahaz was far, so far as to burn his children on the fire after the abominations of the heathen, just like them. He placed within the temple precincts an idolatrous altar that he saw in Damascus. He was really bad. The resistance continued until finally the Assyrian king Sargon II finally wrecked complete destruction on the northern kingdom It didn't need to happen. It shouldn't have happened. If they would have only practiced these three things. I want you to say them again with me. To do what? Justice. Make sure that other people aren't trod down. To do what? Love mercy. Love it. Love mercy. Look to other people as the same. The bonding element, the ties lives together if they would have done that and also to walk humbly before the Lord absolutely that would have prevented this fate from happening Um, you know the prophets did I'm not even going to go into that anyway 
Hezekiah was a loyal and faithful to God as his father Ahaz had been loyal to the idols. He trusted in the Lord God Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor any that were before him, 2 Kings 18.5. Reformation characterized his reign, but even Hezekiah had trouble. I've got to tell you, a real story has nothing to do with it, but Hezekiah built a tunnel. He commissioned workmen to build a tunnel. Have you been to Israel, uh, Jerusalem? There's a place called Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's about 1,600 feet long through solid rock. It goes from inside the city, the Pool of Siloam, to outside the city, the uh, Gihon Spring. And the last time my wife and I were there, we were with a tour group and we determined that we were going to break away from the tour group because we wanted to walk through Hezekiah's Tunnel. And so we went over to a place, and here it was, all barred up and locked, metal door, couldn't get in. But somehow we found a local person, they got in touch with another person, and they unlocked the door, and for the proper amount of money, (laughs) they (laughs) led us through uh, Hezekiah's tunnel. And today, we walked through that thing, and for many, many, uh, some distances you could walk straight up, others you had to bend down, but there was plenty of room to walk, there was water, sometimes around here, and sometimes up around here, as you walk the 1,600 feet all the way through. I mean, when they built this tunnel, they started with a crew from each end. Just think of this thing. How were they going to meet? And when they finally did meet, how far off were they? Not only this way, this way, (laughs) how far off were they? Just inches. I don't know how they did that. But they put a plaque right there where the two sides met. And of course we were quite delighted with that. See all of that and be there and see that happen. But that's one of the things Hezekiah did. Hezekiah did something else. Hezekiah, remember, a reformation. But this is one of the mistakes. None of our lives are entirely pure. We have mistakes. But one of the things that he did is that when the Babylon, among those states surrounding uh, Judea at that time, Uh, They wanted to resist the Assyrian um, invasions and the Assyrian tribute. And so what they did is they came over and sent envoys over to Jerusalem to talk to Jerusalem and see if they would league up with Babylon and resist the Assyrians. And when they came over, do you remember what Hezekiah did? He opened up the city to them. He brought them in. He showed them his tremendous wealth. Where was the wealth kept? in the temple. He brought them into the temple and instead of telling them about God, he showed him his wealth. And then what else did he do? He took them to where all of his armaments were at. Showed them all of the armaments. Do you know what's going on here? When those envoys went back to Babylon, do you know what happened? They took note of that, wrote that down, and years later, Not Hezekiah's day, but some of his ancestors later on, they would come over and take all of Jerusalem and wipe it clean, take all of the wealth and take it over to Babylon. Some of the mistakes that take place is just awesome. So the the thing that I think that we need to remember here is that God was still there at one time. Uh, Even though Hezekiah could could make mistakes like that, There was a time when uh, the Assyrian army came. This time a descendant of Sargon named Shennacherib came. 
And he came and surrounded, and he was going to, he was going to completely destroy Jerusalem. And you remember what happened? Hezekiah practiced the humility part to the core. And instead of doing all the other things that he had been doing or others had done before him, he went to the temple and he sprawled himself out face down before God and he humbled his heart. And what happened? Do you remember what happened? I mean, the armies were outside. They were ready to destroy, plunder, kill, destroy, just maybe do the very same thing that happened to the northern tribe that just totally disappeared the whole nation. But while Hezekiah was praying, the people came in and joined him in prayer. And the whole nation began to pray. Can you tell me what happened? This was a people that were very sinful and they weren't bearing fruit and they needed to, they needed this punishment and they were down on their face and they were praying, what's God going to say? You deserve this? You've earned it? You're going to get it? God got what He wanted. Humility. It was there. And so who went out to war against the Assyrians? How did He do it? Did what? Some of the results of uh, the, uh, the uh, sayings of the times, the records of the times, says some kind of a plague broke out. We don't know exactly what happened. But it just wiped out all of the enemies at one time. So what I'm saying to me and to all of us today, that this kind of a story repeats itself over and over down through history. The prophets were shown that probably the people would not respond well. Remember, they couldn't find one righteous. And so the prophets began to move in their messages to the future. And they began to pinpoint what was called a remnant. That there would be a small group at the end of time that would live justly, that would practice mercy, and that would be humble way on down to the end of time. Maybe those people would exist when Jesus Christ came. One of Micah's prophecies about Jesus was spoken in his day, Jesus' day. And maybe the Jews, after all that had happened, the northern tribes and now the southern tribes, and they had the Romans on the top of them all the time, maybe they would do justly, maybe they would practice mercy, maybe they would be humble, And maybe with Jesus there, he would finally have fruit. God would. Did that happen? No. Instead, Jesus had to warn about a time that would come when they would have to flee to the mountains and all of Jerusalem was completely sacked. And the the Jews were chased off into nowhere for 2,000 years almost. It wasn't until the middle of the last century they got their land back. They were just lost people everywhere around the world. I'm saying to all of us, we can't escape these three demands. Remember what they are? Justice, mercy, and humility. Those three things. And now it comes down to us at the end of time. God's still looking for people. And we have to come up under the same kind of a thing. And you better believe, every day of your life, God is looking, and He's looking for justice. 
in the way we deal with people. He's looking for mercy. Do we love one another as one? We are our hearts really knit together. Is Jesus' prayer in John 17, Father, let them be one even as we are one. Is that being realized? Not the Leninger situation in Healdsburg, you know. And do we practice humility? Those are three essential things to producing fruit so that we can go home. The story of Micah is a story for us too, isn't it? 